So here we are, one whole day of practice under our belts. I hope the weather inside has been at least nearly as good as the weather outside. I know the first day of retreat isn't easy. Sometimes the second day of retreat isn't easy either. (laughs) And we haven't named this today yet, but today is the summer solstice. And we were talking about the kind of the image of the turning wheel, the turning wheel of the wood turner or the potter this morning and the revolution of the breath. But actually we're on the at the time of a, I mean, it's always revolving, but the kind of pivotal point of another revolution. So today is our longest day. And uh, we're going to offer a little something t- related to that after, after this talk. But it being the solstice, it feels like a good time to kind of pull back a little bit and look a bit at the the meta picture as in m-e-t-a not m-e-t-t-a picture of our practice although the m-e-t-t-a aspect of our practice is also always relevant and to just reflect what brings us to this place of inquiry or cultivation or practice of seeking. And I feel from talking to different people on this retreat and on other retreats and over the last few weeks and months, as we have this kind of emergence from the pandemic or emergence from the perception of pandemic. I know the pandemic's still happening. Um, And coming back to in-person retreating or perhaps newly discovering in-person retreating after having kind of got into practice online. Kind of the revisiting what's our relationship to Dharma practice. And maybe this is a process of feeling into that while we're here. What's our relationship to being on retreat? What's our relationship to our our practice? Is it something that for you is a delight or a chore? Is it a passion or is it something that's become a habit? Is it something in which you find solace and refuge? Or is it something that you feel a vague sense of guilt about? Sometimes even oppressed by? Is it just kind of your existential insurance policy? Not a bad existential insurance policy to have. The Buddha even praised that in the famous discourse to the Kalamas. If you don't kind of know how it all works, this is a good way to place your bet. Is it just something that we we turn to in an emergency? We kind of go through life kind of forgetting all about it until it really gets difficult and then we kind of turn to our practice. 
get our practice out of the cupboard? Um, or is it something that you feel enriches and gives meaning to your life in an ongoing way? And I throw all these out there because they're all true for me at different times. You know, all those perceptions of, a pra of practice can arise in my mind. And none of them are entirely bad because it's always better to be engaged than disengaged. But some of them are kind of happy and um, uplifting and inspiring and some of them are kind of you know, not very helpful for getting me motivated, getting me engaged. And sometimes I can tell that they're just due to a particular passing mind state. And sometimes uh, maybe they're a little bit more under the radi radar, these views of practice. So it can be worth kind of looking to what what is the kind of underlying, perhaps uninvestigated for some time, view of our practice that we're holding. Because how, how we imagine something affects the way that we experience it. A kind of easy example of that is how we relate to school or how we related to school or how different people or maybe your children relate to school. One person who was studying near where I live in Oxford and who I passed occasionally um, outside her college was Malala Yousafzai. And, you know, she's a reminder that for some people, the idea of going to school is a you know, gift or a privilege beyond imagination and feels like the gateway into all kinds of possibilities and freedoms, a way of kind of really making the most of your life, finding dignity and empowerment and uh, connections and so on. And then for other people, I remember years and years ago reading Bob Geldof's autobiography. He's the first person who comes to mind. And people who are in a situation where you really feel like you're being stifled and imposed upon and, um, you know, manipulated into conformity by a power structure that has nothing to do with you and doesn't really understand you or have your interests at heart. And both of those are reasonable perceptions in different circumstances, but you can see how they give you a completely different relationship to what you're doing and uh, how you inhabit what you're doing. So there are different ways we can relate to practice. And even that word practice comes loaded, doesn't it? It's like, so I think, I can't remember who, it's, who said it, maybe. Yeah, I actually can't remember who, who said it, but it's in one of, these mind, one of the many mindfulness training manuals that I have encountered in my time as a Dharma and mindfulness practitioner and teacher, that practice does not mean rehearsal. And yet, sometimes we treat it as if it means rehearsal. I've even noticed how um, 
I can be practicing and kind of narrate my practice to myself. And you probably, you might find that if you have the prospect of a, a practice meeting or an interview, that we're kind of self-monitoring, not so much from a mindful, mindfulness perspective, but to have something to report back on, you know. Or we're practicing in order to get something in future, which is both a valid and a kind of slightly deluded approach to practice because we're practicing for now, or we're practicing now. So I just want to draw our attention to a few of the different ways of imagining practice that are traditional and maybe another one that speaks to me at the moment and can see just again as we keep encouraging is take what helps you in this and let the rest slide away so what's just seeing what speaks to you and also maybe there are other images of your own that come to mind so the first the first image is of course is that of the path yeah. And this is, a, this is an image that really makes sense to the part of me that wants a map and a sense of direction. Like I want a road map for my life, a kind of manual, if you like. And this image of the path is used in different ways in the teachings. But one, one beautiful example is a, the simile of the ancient city city symbolizing a place of safety and prosperity and abundance. And the Buddha said, suppose a person was walking through a forest. They'd see an ancient path, an ancient route traveled by humans in the past. Following it along, they'd see an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by humans in the past. It was lovely complete with parks, groves, lotus ponds, and embankments. Then that person would inform a king or their minister, please, sir, you should know this. While walking through a forest, I saw an ancient path, an ancient route traveled by humans in the past. Following it along, I saw an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by humans in the past. It was lovely, complete with parks and groves and lotus ponds and embankments. Sir, you should rebuild that city. Then that king or their minister would have that city rebuilt. And after some time, that city was successful and prosperous and full of people, attained to growth and expansion. In the same way, I saw an ancient path, an ancient route traveled by fully awakened Buddhas in the path, past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is simply this noble eightfold path that is right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is that ancient path, that ancient road traveled by fully awakened Buddhas in the past. So the sense that there's a, there's a map, there's a road map, and this really clear framework of an eightfold path and in this image, you know, the Buddha is rediscovering an ancient path trodden by many 
Buddhas of previous eons, so or people in the past. And I really like that sense of mm, whether or not uh, people arise and walk it, that path is there to be found. You know, it's these truths remain true whether or not um, we wake, whether we or not we wake up to them, whether or not we find we have a personal teacher. Actually, this is a trustworthy roadmap. And in this image, the Buddha is finding a path that's already there. But there's also the sense that a path um, is made by walking it. You know, it's kind of you're hacking your way through the jungle, making your own path. And this is how a path comes into being, through people making tracks in a certain terrain. And actually, the, the middle way, the majima patipada, patipada, the way or the path means step by step, again and again stepping. Your pada is your foot. So stepping again and again. And that was one of the, the first ways that the Buddha was represented. And I, I love that. I think it's still there. I haven't paid attention this time, but we have those two footprints, that traditional symbol out above the the shoe rack, which is a very good place for it, um, that was one of the earliest ways that the Buddha was depicted as the discoverer of the path. And I like that sense of having the feet on the ground yeah. and the way that walking is responsive. So in your walking meditation, noticing how, you know, each step is a, is a kind of marvel of balance, in a sense, um, that we can even stand upright and walk like this. And so with each step on the path, we, the situation, the, the, the world that we have is rising up to meet us, and we step, what can I do to meet, to meet this moment? And we have these eight feet or eight legs, and I was getting carried away with this and then thinking, gosh, there might be lots of people in here afraid of spiders. So maybe octopuses are more fashionable at the moment. But we have these eight different kind of uh, options or a combo of eight options that we can respond that might be appropriate in the moment. Which foot to move next? Which way to stay in balance? You know, is there something skillful of view that I can bring forward, some skillful perspective of understanding? Is there a skillful intention I can, I can bring to meet this moment? Maybe it's a moment that calls for some skillful speech, wise speech, some form of skillful action or effort, just a meeting of the moment with mindfulness. Is there an opportunity for steadiness, stability, and concentration to be cultivated here? So that, you know, there are endless possibilities in the meeting of this moment. And one of the, the sayings I love from the Mahayana tradition is the, the saying that Dharma doors are endless. Every moment is an opportunity to take a step, to cultivate something. 
and yet if we come back to the to the Buddha's sense of rediscovering a path that others have trod before us it's also the case that sometimes that we can follow in the footsteps of others we can notice learn from um, the observation of others oh that that person is negotiated that situation in a really skillful way I would like to um, learn from that to emulate that and sometimes we're just discovering new territory for ourselves, yeah. and that can be an adventure so we also get later images of um, climbing and climbing mountains in the Mahayana they talk about climbing Nirvana mountain and uh, before way way back many centuries ago before I became a nun I used to be into climbing mountains and so those mountain, mountain images really appealed and when you climb a mountain and you're going uphill you really do have a sense of doing things step by step sometimes that's all you can do is you know just think about the next step and also you know you have a maybe you can see the top of the mountain and maybe you can't and it comes and goes from behind the clouds and as you round a bend the view of the mountaintop may be different so you have a sense of where you're going a sense of direction but we don't know what the view of the view is like from the top of the mountain until we get there So I, I like the sense of the path as being something that's kind of patient and piecemeal and inviting us to just deal with what's immediately in front of us. And the sense that the path always exists whether, we, whether we're on it or not. It's always rediscoverable. And then there's, other, there's another discourse where the Buddha kind of points out that the path is there but you, you know you have to walk it for yourself um, that and all he can do and this is even the Buddha all he can do is point out the way so he says to this person who's come to see him you know if somebody asks you for directions to the town can you give them and say yes I will tell them do this do this and he says it's just so if somebody comes and asks me directions to freedom to nibbana i can point out the way but if they choose to take that way or not it's kind of up to them even the buddha is just one who points the way so maybe the sense of being a path walker appeals to you Another image which I really like is the sense of the path of practice or of practice as being a stream that flows or a river which flows out towards the ocean. And this has a bit more of a sense of it being something that you can rest into and allow to carry you, that you can trust. It's said that the ocean has one taste, just as the ocean has the taste of salt one taste, the taste of salt, in the same way the teaching and practice has one taste, the taste of freedom. If you feel more genuine sense of freedom, you're probably going in a good direction. And this sense that the path 
gathers momentum. So we have the, the image of the stream enterer or the concept of the stream enterer who's someone who's kind of jumped into the practice to the extent that their practice has an, an enough momentum to keep carrying them, maybe bumpily, but keep carrying them in the direction of freedom. And we can debate, you know, philosophically what actually marks stream entry and how you tell whether it's happened to you or not. And But really, it's about how much confidence and independence one has in the teachings, how much, yeah, how, mu how much confidence, faith, and how much integrity in the practice we have. So one of the ways that you um, that stream entry manifests is that one becomes incapable of really you know gross um, transgressions of of this training of non-harming and incapable of deceit and deception so one's integrity and one's conduct become more and more impeccable and it's not to say that people don't make mistakes, but it becomes more and more difficult to conceal mistakes. And we don't, I think it's really not very helpful often to try and say, well, is this me or isn't this me? And a sense of I've achieved something, but maybe we can kind of see for ourselves: is there a momentum to this practice? And how is this practice <coughs> transforming me over time? And, you know, looking back, how, how would one behave now and how has one behaved then? And, you know, it's not always a linear thing. We zigzag. But it's really important to notice and reflect on the momentum of our practice. Another simile. This is talking about nagas or um, the dragons that inhabit the oceans. And the Buddha says, practitioners, dragons grow and wax strong, supported by the Himalayas, the king of mountains. When they're strong, they dive into pools. Then they dive into the lakes, the streams, the rivers, and finally the ocean. There they acquire a great and abundant body. In the same way, a practitioner develops and cultivates the seven factors of awakening, depended on and grounded on ethics, acquiring great and abundant good qualities. And then he goes on to list the awakening factors, but one could apply this really to any accumulation of good qualities. And they have the sense of carrying us downstream towards this freedom, towards this sense of freedom. Here's uh, something from Ajahn Chah again. Little less exotic than dragons. This is called log. If we cut a log of wood and throw it into a river, it floats downstream. If that log doesn't rot or get stuck on one of the banks of the river, it will finally reach the ocean. 
Likewise, the mind that practices the middle way and doesn't attach to either extreme of self-sensual indulgence or self-mortification will inevitably attain true peace. The log in our analogy represents the mind. The banks of the river represent on one side love, on the other side hate. Or you can say that one bank is happiness and the other unhappiness. To follow the middle way is to see love, hate, happiness and unhappiness for what they really are, only feelings. This is not to say that we don't feel these things, but the idea is not to cling to them. So once this understanding has been achieved, the mind will not easily drift toward them and get caught. It's the practice of the understanding mind not to nurture not to cling to any feelings that rise. The mind then freely flows down the river unhampered and eventually flows into the ocean of Nibbana. So I really, I really like this image because I happen to have been um, very recently, I had the great good fortune to go rafting in uh, Utah through Canyonlands National Park. I had two weeks of rafting down the Green River, which is a tributary of the Colorado, and down the Colorado with a friend who's a Dharma teacher, but also a really experienced river runner. And uh, really kind of feeling what it's like to both let yourself be transported downstream, but also having to work to stay in the middle of the river and afloat, especially when you hit rapids. And, um, you know, you have, to, you have to work quite hard and quite diligently to keep your raft upright and also not to get stuck in eddies. You know. So there's times when, yes, the practice is carrying us, but there's also a level of mindfulness that needs to be applied. And sometimes when things get turbulent, you have to really um, reassert yourself. We don't want to get tangled up on the banks of the river. We want to stay in the middle, as Ajahn Chah says. And then especially when it gets tricky, you know, and this happened for us, it's kind of really valuable and important that you travel with others. Yeah, that and whether we're walking a path, climbing a mountain, rafting down a river, at difficult times, companions are really, really important. Um, if something happens to you, they're there to keep you safe. So to stay in the middle and watch out for obstacles and navigate around them but also recognizing that one can be carried. And yet the river moves at its own pace. So, you know, yeah, you can row downstream, but you can't go faster than the river wants you to go. And when you have an upstream wind, you don't go very far at all. So sometimes you just have to sit out the upstream wind. Another feature of this down, downstream travel towards the ocean 
And another simile, the ocean gradually slants, slopes and inclines with no abrupt precipice. In the same way, in this teaching and training, the arrival at awakening comes from a gradual training, a gradual progress and practice, not abruptly. So this perspective on patience. So sometimes is a question like, do we have to do it? Would it, would it serve us to develop more trust and confidence in the practice and appreciation of how the practice is carrying us? A lot of teaching is around reflecting on one's own good qualities. And this is something that we often feel very reluctant and inhibited to do. I think a lot of us are so conditioned to be immensely self-critical and see everything that's wrong with us rather than celebrate actually what we are cultivating and developing in our lives. And maybe that's something to investigate. The third image is the image of the raft a raft across the floods, across a raging river, from the near shore that is fraught with danger to the far shore that is safe. So the raft is something that we can rescue us in turbulent times. And this image of being kind of caught up and buffeted around in the flood, sometimes that's what feels most pertinent, most relevant to us. This sense of being kind of swept away and overwhelmed by our pressures, demands of life, the different knocks of fortune that happen, the losses, the disappointments, uh, the internal and external challenges. So that might feel like a really kind of alive um, expression of what we're doing traveling across a, a kind of really tempestuous stretch of river to a place of safety. So this is what the Buddha says. Suppose a person in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge for going to the far, far shore. Then they thought, there is this great expanse of water whose near shore is dangerous and fearful and whose further shore is safe and free from fear. But there's no ferry boat or bridge for going to the far shore. Suppose I collect grass, twigs and branches and leaves and bind them together into a raft and supported by the raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. And then the person collected grass, twigs, branches and leaves and bound them together into a raft and supported by the raft and making an effort with their hands and feet, they got safely across to the far shore. So. In this image, I really like the sense of kind of taking what's at hand on your shore of the river. What can you lay your hands on and use to improvise your raft? 
and then the sense that actually even though we've made the raft we have to do some paddling also and it's really good to have a collection of materials ready at hand you know so again this thing don't wait to weave your parachute until the plane's going down you know, have your parachute ready so we might be also mm, assembling assembling materials and building our raft almost as we go yeah. but this simile of the raft also comes with a particular message you know, which again many of us may may know so the, the Buddha goes on, then when they have got across and had arrived at the far shore, the person might think thus, this raft has been very helpful to me since supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder and then go wherever I want. Now monks, what do you think? By doing so, would that person be doing what should be done with that raft? No, venerable sir. By doing what would that person be doing what should be done with that raft? Here, monks, when that person got across and had arrived at the far shore, they might think thus, this raft has been very helpful to me, since supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Suppose I were to haul it onto the dry land or set it adrift in the water and then go wherever I want. Now, monks, it is by doing so that that person would be doing what should be done with that raft. So I have shown you how the Dharma is similar to a raft, being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. So this is a really, you know, a good one to remember when we see what are we doing with the teachings it can be really we can get this kind of dharma excitement where we um, kind of go around having raft competitions with each other or comparing rafts or debating debating the uh, the the um, qualities of our raft and this is a really a reminder that the Dharma is not for winning debate contests. And this is how this actually, this teaching arose, is when people have been getting into um, kind of using the Dharma for belittling one another. It's also not for making an identity out of that one has to carry around. So we pick it up and make use of it and then we can let it go. And you can think of this on the macro level as the entire journey of arriving at the other shore. But in any moment, it's like, when do I need to put this, pick this up? And when can I put it down? When can I let it go? So one of the ways that we might inhabit our practice is we've kind of got this identity for ourselves as I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Buddhist practitioner, I'm a serious Dharma practitioner. And to an extent that's helpful and to an extent it becomes an impediment so kind of just reflecting on what are we doing with our raft can somehow be useful you know how am i applying the teachings am i using them 
as intended? Am I using them for practice? Am I attaching to my views and opinions yeah, in ways that are unhelpful? And am I using them to kind of bash or criticize other people? Um, yeah, these are all questions that I can ask myself. So, the raft. And this image of um, crossing floods, there's a very lovely book by Ajahn Suchito, I think it's uh, on the Paramis, the Ten Perfections, Ways to Cross Life's Floods, which kind of elaborates this image of flood crossing. And the Paramis are a beautiful set of qualities out of which to build one's raft. So the, f the fourth image that I want to offer is one that I really, I'm really enjoying delving into for myself at the moment. And this is kind of not from the suttas, but it comes from reflection on this word bhavana, um, which is another word for practice. There's patipada, this making of the path step by step, or also bhavana, bringing into being, which we translate as cultivation. And it can mean practice. Sometimes it's used as meditation also. But it invites the idea of cultivating, and to me that suggests cultivating a garden. And what does that mean to me? It's like, how do we cultivate something that is life-nurturing and beautiful out of the raw materials of a human life? Bearing in mind that we're always cultivating something, just as we're always taking a next step. Where do we want that step to be leading and what do we want to be cultivating? And there's a, there's a sense in this image of working, working with rather than against nature. So we take the kind of raw materials of our life of our life circumstances, of our situation, and we work with them, tending, tending our plot whilst respecting the pace of nature. So Thich Nhat Hanh is a teacher who really, you know, got into this image of gardening. And the, at the time of the Buddha, there wasn't, I don't think there was much gardening in the sense that we think of it. And the Buddha doesn't talk much about growing fruits and vegetables, but Thich Nhat Hanh, in these more settled monasteries that people have lived in, in the subsequent centuries, certainly in the, in the Mahayana countries, um, and also in Christian monasteries, actually, there's a, so gardening was a big part of spiritual practice. So he has lots of images for this and the sense of, you know, weeding out that which needs to be weeded out and turning that into the compost for growing beautiful qualities. And again, these qualities of the paramis come to mind, the qualities of generosity, kindness, renunciation, truthfulness. Um, what else is there? Uh, wisdom, equanimity, resolve energy and so forth but you could really list any skillful qualities there as things worth growing in your garden and every garden that we cultivate is going to be unique 
For me, it's a way of bringing that sense of uh, connection with the natural world in wherever I am. It's lovely if we have a real garden to cultivate. Many of us, like me, don't have a real garden to cultivate or a, a conventional garden. But we can think of ourselves as gardeners of the spirit, gardeners of the heart. And that we can grow something beautiful to offer into the world. And in that, to nurture the health of the world and the ecosystem as a whole. And becoming a kind of place of shelter and a resource for others. This is something that gardens offer us, not only um, fruit and vegetable and nourishment, but they also offer us um, rest and solace and a beautiful garden soothes the soul. So can we make within ourselves the kind of qualities that create a beautiful garden? And this is in a, in a garden that's a healthy garden. You know, many bees, birds, insects will come to visit. And the, there's a pollination that happens. This spreads to other gardens. So even though you have the sense of you're cultivating your own plot, it's connected with everybody else's. And as each of us cultivates the heart, it contributes to the health of the whole. So I, li I like this image at the moment because it has this, this sense of kind of playfulness and creativity to it. So I guess the question is, you know, what's, what's your image? And maybe you have other ones. But you have the option of being a, a hiker or a rower or a rafter or a gardener. And if you feel like you're one of those, what kind of a one do you want to be? Yeah. Choose to do something that you enjoy. What is your vision of your practice that speaks to you? Are you a solitary gardener or rower, or do you like to go in a go in a flotilla or be on an allotment? You know how important is sangha to you? What helps you stay motivated and inspired? What helps you feel empowered to navigate difficulties? And, and maybe these different images are, feel relevant at different times. I definitely have that sense for myself. It's nice to call upon these different kind of ways of inhabiting practice at different times. So I just want to end with a, a poem. This is part of the Greek poet Kavafi's poem, Ithaca. Ithaca was the home of Odysseus, the hero of the Odyssey, who fought for 10 years in the Trojan War and then took another 10 years to get home. And uh, this gave rise to this epic, this epic journey. And on his way, he encountered various monsters, including the, these 
the Lystragonians and the Cyclops that are referred to in the poem, both which were man-eating giants and one-eyed monsters who also ate people, and then Poseidon, the god of the sea, who was angry with him and kept throwing all these obstacles in, this wa in his way. But here's some advice for the journey, which is maybe a slightly different perspective from the traditional Dharma perspective, but another one that I feel is really pertinent. As you set out for Ithaca, hope your road is a long one, full of adventure, full of discovery. Lystragonians, Cyclops, angry Poseidon, don't be afraid of them. You'll never find things like that on your way, as long as you keep your thoughts raised high, as long as a rare excitement stirs your spirit and your body. Lystragonians, Cyclops, and wild Poseidon, you won't encounter them unless you bring them along inside your soul, unless your soul sets them up in front of you. Hope your road is a long one. Keep Ithaca always in your mind. Arriving there is what you're destined for. But don't hurry the journey at all. Better if it lasts for years, so you're old by the time you reach the island, wealthy with all you've gained on the way, not expecting Ithaca to make you rich. Ithaca gave you the marvellous journey. Without her, you wouldn't have set out. She has nothing left to give you now. And if you find her poor, Ithaca won't have fooled you. Wise as you will have become, so full of experience, you'll have understood by then what these Ithacas mean. So let's just sit for a minute or two together. <clears throat> 